0: My name's Todd. This is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 751. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because you'll feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is the best predictor of a child's well being, is a parent's self understanding. On today's show, we have Mr. Nate Klemp. Where's my. Oh, that's the wrong one. Let's do that. There we go. That's a little bit better. Nate, welcome to the podcast. This is the second time you've been on the podcast. First was with your wife. Now you're all alone. Are you nervous that your wife is not here
1: to help you out? <laughs> you know, I love being here with my wife, so there is a little bit of additional pressure, mm-hmm. I feel like. Two of you, one of me. It's That's a right. Mismatch. We're going to gang up on them, it's, sweetie. It's all That's on right. you, Right? Yeah, I'm being interrogated That's or something.
0: mm mm-hmm. um, I am so stoked to talk about this book. Uh, so Nate Klemp, he's a PhD, he's a brainiac, philosopher, <laughs> writer, mindfulness entrepreneur. He co-authored New York Times bestselling "Start Here" and New York Times Critics Pick "The Eighty Eighty Marriage." His work's been featured all over the place. Blah blah blah. His blah, uh, blah, book blah. is "Open" by Nate Klemp: Living with an expansive mind in a distracted world. I'm so glad that you're on here with us. As I was sharing, as before we press record. Uh, We get a lot of people saying, hey, I want to talk about my book on your podcast. And I most always say no. The reason I said yes to Nate is because I know him and we had him on the show before and it seemed to go pretty well. Um, But honestly, Nate, my first impression was like, okay, you wrote a book called Open. He's just going to tell me to meditate more. Like this this may be boring. And it turns out it's the opposite of boring. And I am trying to reserve myself from some of the questions I want to ask because I at least want to give you some foundational things to share with our audience, what, what the overall deal is with the book, and then we're just gonna jump in. So why did you write this book? What's it about?
1: I wrote this book because a few years ago, I was having this experience where it felt like the size of my mind was getting smaller. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One was I noticed in myself this insatiable craving for my screens. Hmm. And I noticed my ability to regulate that craving seemed to be getting worse by the year. The other thing I noticed was my attitude toward people who disagreed with me, particularly about politics was changing. That a while back in my life, these people might've had a different perspective and now they were insane, deluded, maybe even the enemy. And so at first I thought, well, maybe I'm the only one having this experience, but the more I talk to other people, started looking at the research, I realized that this is something I think we're all experiencing on some level. Mm -hmm. And to me, it feels like the problem of our time. And I think it's the problem of our time because one, it's ubiquitous, we're all experiencing it, but two, it's invisible. It's mostly happening below the level of our conscious awareness. It's like so subtle that we don't even see it happening in real time. So I finally came up with a word for this experience I was having which is closed. Mm -hmm. And that led me to this central super simple distinction that the whole book is based around between being open and being closed. And it turns out the big difference between these two States really has to do with that experience. I was describing at the beginning, that size of our mind, Mm -hmm. the size of our awareness, our attention and that a closed mind is this very small contracted small space and when we are able to open we get a little bit more perspective we get a little bit more expansive space in the mind so ultimately that's what the book's about and then there's a lot of yeah various ways i go about exploring that
0: and we'll get into that um so uh, i think i know the answer to this but i'm going to ask it anyways i it this reminds me above the line below the line all the stuff that your wife wrote yeah. in 15 commitments but uh so open um you're either open or closed at any particular moment, but are there times when we're more open and a little and then sometimes a little bit open and then sometimes we're more closed and a little bit closed like is is there a gradation between open and closed?
1: Yes, okay. So this to me is not binary at all. It's a spectrum. And at any given moment, I think we find ourselves somewhere on the spectrum. So if you think about those amazing moments you may have had, where you really are seeing your life and the world from a bigger perspective. You just got back from a retreat or some amazing meditation or, you know, some just moment of realization that's really far over on the opening side. But I think in most of everyday life, we're kind of hovering in the middle. When we get really stressed, we start to close down a little bit. When we get really, really stressed, you know, like those weeks where you just get crushed, I think we start to go way over to that extreme of closing and that's when we're most prone to those behaviors of political outrage and digital Mm -hmm. addiction.
2: Yeah, you know, in what you were saying at the beginning um, about, you know, where we are now with our screens is that the the problem is how normalized, you know, how to your point that everybody's doing it, you know, you can't see it, it's invisible. And it's so normalized that there, because I can remember, Nate, and i don't know what year it was it was probably a decade ago maybe less than that maybe 5 or 6 years ago but being like i am never going to look at my phone when i wake up i can't believe people look at their phone when they wake up you know and we and our girls were at the age where like i think my oldest had a phone and we had she had to plug it in in the bathroom at night and we had all of these things around it and that's just not happening anymore and and i know for some people for me meaning like i can see my progress my poor progress into addiction, (laughs) you know, where it's become so, you know, like I remember my girls used to say, but mom, you know, we need it for a, an alarm. And I'd say, well, we'll get you an alarm. And we bought them an alarm. Like we were so proactive in keeping it from Mm -hmm. becoming this way. And I may just be speaking for myself that I dropped the ball in many ways. It, It may not be society, but do you feel that when you talk to people, I mean, you use the words, it's ubiquitous, it's invisible, that... It's so normalized that it's we just can't even tell mm-hmm. where we, be, we began and the phone ends and vice versa.
1: I was waiting in my car to take a left yesterday. <laughs> oh, totally. So I was watching all the other drivers before I could take my left. And three out of the five cars that passed me going 40 miles an hour were driven by people who were texting. I was watching them. Yes. Look down at their phones as we're driving as they're on a road. And... You know, I was out at a date night the other night with my wife and look around the restaurant. Bunch of the couples are like yeah. sitting there across from each other on their phones. So and I think you're right. There's something about how even if we're well-intentioned and we're trying to set boundaries, there's this kind of wearing away of some of the discipline we might have over time. And that was the experience that I was describing, this experience of really wanting to have this freedom from my devices the freedom to really spend my time and attention on what mattered most to me not to big tech companies and yet my experience in real time was that of just like this slow
2: kind of like wearing away <laughs> of my ability to control my own mind exactly and you know what i what i was i was reading your book this morning and i want to say Same with Todd. Like I've read a lot of mindfulness books, a lot of meditation books. I write books about these things. And I was like halfway through it in like two hours. Like it's really, it's interesting because of the experiences, which we're going to get into in a minute that you share are things I'm also very interested in. But what I have found with my device is that it's very similar to when I started meditating, that there is something that people don't understand about meditating if they don't do it is you don't want to do it when you go do it. Like we have this concept of like, oh, I love to meditate and I love to sit down. I don't know about anybody else, but my brain tells me this is a waste of time. Don't bother. Don't go. And I have to somewhat like, you know, pull, I don't want to say fight through it because I'm not fighting myself, but I'm like, just know that that's what happens. And then once you sit down, you're glad you did, you know, and it's really the same thing with my phone where I'm like, I just want to look at my phone. And I have this thing in my head saying, you know, don't or don't turn it on or whatever so it's like the same i'm having the same argument with myself about i know that this is sugar you know and that it makes me feel good and i get the dopamine hits but it's almost like we have to understand that you know and you explain this well in your book in different ways but we are going to want to go to our phone we're we're being trained to go to our phone for everything like you know there's many different ways you could take this but could you explain what's happening to us when we're like but i want Hmm. to look at my phone
1: There's definitely all sorts of structures of the brain that are getting activated here, as you say. And I think what you bring up that's so important is that the pathway toward reaching out for our devices is lined with comfort and pleasure, at least at the outset. The pathway toward meditating or reading a book or having a really intense conversation with your partner that's lined with a little bit of discomfort at the beginning. So if those are the entry points and we're not really conscious about the paths we're taking, like we know exactly what's going to happen, right? The, the water's all going to (laughs) flow down that path of that's lined with pleasure Mm -hmm. and comfort. And there's this really fascinating study that I actually think helps illuminate this, that they put people in this room for 15 minutes and they had them do this like 15 minute thinking period where Mm -hmm. you just sit there with your thoughts. And most people found it incredibly uncomfortable to just be there with their own mind, even though you might think like, wow, in a busy world, having 15 minutes to not do anything, that sounds amazing. And then they modified the experiment where they put people in a room for 15 minutes, but also attached an electrode to their ankle and now gave them the option of delivering a high voltage shock to themselves or sitting alone with their minds. And they found that like. 27% of women shocked themselves. 67% of men shocked themselves. One dude shocked himself 190 times in 15 minutes because it was so uncomfortable to be with our own mind. Hmm. So that discomfort you're describing, I think, is real. And it makes me think, this is funny, that I was watching American Idol last year with my daughter and Lionel Richie said, freedom begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And I thought to myself, that is actually really true of this predicament. Yeah. That freedom from our devices begins at the edge of our comfort zone. We actually have to push through a little bit of discomfort. Yeah.
2: I, I know. So one more thing, Todd. Just sure. so I don't forget, and I know I this is my third question in a row, but I I have to I have had to apply uh, Atomic Habits, which Todd loves that book. I don't really necessarily love it for everything, but I have had to apply a practice to meditation, obviously my, you know, my meditation timer is on my phone, so it's there, but it's like, I'm not, you know, that's where I'm with my thoughts. The shower, I'm not going to listen to anything while I'm in the shower. I'm not going to listen to anything when I'm driving to yoga and I'm not going to listen to anything during yoga. Those are like the things I do that I'm like, this is going to be my habit because, Nate, the rest of the day I am listening to a podcast, I am checking things on my phone, I am texting, like I am no different than anybody else, but I have had to apply things to my life mm. that I don't like because then I'm like, I, I want to listen to something on the way to you. Like, I'm having this argument, but I guess my point is, is we have to be so conscious or else there's no way we're going to have any separation you know, there's, there's, you kind of have this thing um, that I wrote down that I loved about the meta awareness, and that mm-hmm. you, you were talking about something else. But it's like you have to be. You're talking about like seeing horror movies and stuff, but you have to be aware of what's happening. If you are not awake to what's happening, there is no way you're not going to have your phone 24 seven.
1: Well, and I think the other point you make that I just want to touch on briefly is a, a point that Cal Newport makes in his book Digital Minimalism, which is. I think, really important to this discussion, which is that this is not a battle between equals like us and big tech. This is a David and Goliath like struggle where we are pitted against the smartest technologists in the world, the most sophisticated AI algorithms in all of human history, all designed to keep us on site for as long as possible. So, you know, this is not meant to be some sort of like conspiracy theory, but it's just like, this is the reality of what we're up against. And so we need to bring a lot of consciousness intention to the way we design our environments and our time. Otherwise, we are just going to get swept away. That's right.
0: Okay. So this is why I I was excited to talk to you today, because Nate is do, did something in researching or preparing for this book. And there are things that I have... Have been unwilling to do or even thought to do in the first place. So I'm just going to outline the ones that were the biggest for me, and then we're going to start. I think from from the ones that show up at the back of the book towards the front, because screen technology. We've, I mean, we're so inundated with all that information. But some of the other things that you did, because you did a, a three day screen binge. Is that what, what it I was? I did. Yeah. Right. Yep. We'll, we'll, hopefully, we'll get to that, but yeah, because I, okay. I want
2: to because I have something and to it's say an about
0: important it. one. Yeah, that is screen, because that's something we all battle. But there's yeah. other things that are new to me that I wanted to talk okay. about. So this is what Nate did. He screen-bidged, um which just means that he uh, consumed as much stuff on his device as possible for three days to see what would happen. He also um, experienced some psychedelics uh, through ketamine. Um, he did an NRA training when it comes to you know trying to see the other side because you're you're not a big fan of guns and neither am I and you you immerse yourself in that community and then lastly <laughs> not lastly but I think it's second to last you had major gum surgery and you chose not to take uh, sedative which is what the doctor said to do um, and I think this won't take as long but I just want. <laughs> you to explain why would somebody who seems to be a rational human being, I can't imagine gum surgery without, so it, can you just frame out the process and then the experience
1: and why, and why you wanted to do that? I had a pretty significant surgery where they were going to remove the tissue from the top of my mouth and basically put it on the bottom of my gums because the gum line was receding and i had read all these stories of like these super hardcore mindfulness people who turned down sedation and you know got a colonoscopy without mm-hmm. being put under things like that and i thought to myself well if i'm really interested in the topic of opening here is a here's a pretty interesting experience And so I, I told the doctor, you know, he's like, we're going to sedate you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, is there any way I could just meditate and not do the sedation cocktail? (laughs) And the guy thought I was crazy. He's like, I I mean, I guess you could do that, but like, I wouldn't recommend it. And so I said, no, I think that's what I want to do. And and so anyway, I get into the surgery and it's supposed to be 90 minutes and I've got my playlist on and my blinders. I'm trying to turn it into this kind of meditation experience. And for the first 90 minutes or so, it actually was pretty manageable. I was really just focusing on opening to the sensations happening. And, you know, they, I had Novocaine and, and Tylenol and Advil. So that got rid of most of the, the most extreme sensation. But the problem was that the, the, just because I was awake, I was reacting involuntarily in ways that made the surgery like twice as long. And the Novocaine was starting to wear off because the surgery was going longer than it was supposed to. And so it turned into this just like absolutely horrific experience Mm. of intense pain. And, And I think the real insight I got from that, which was actually very helpful to this whole project of understanding opening as a practice, was that opening is not an unqualified good. We shouldn't always open to everything Yes, it's good most of the time. But in this case, I think it would have been much better for me to just close down, take the sedation cocktail. And so it actually led me to this concept that I call skillful closing, which is this idea that, yeah, let's let's open more to life. But there may be moments like getting a three-hour gum surgery where you say to yourself, you know what? I think it's more skillful for me to close down in this moment.
2: I know it, um, that part, it reminds me of childbirth. Um And I really, really, really wanted to birth naturally. A lot of women do a lot of, it's, you know, uh, I just wanted to. But with my first, I just, it got too intense. With my second, it got too intense. And with my third, I, I, like you, I like was into my hypnobirthing. I've been reading books. I did all the things and I did it. Um, And it was rough. You know, like there is a, there is medical, there's reasons why you know, that there is help to support. I'm not saying I regret it. It's it's And you probably don't regret it because you learned a lot. But it's just an interesting experience of it's okay that you're getting some support and help in a very painful time. I mean, it really kind of, not to get too sidetracked, but it connects to how we feel about pain in our society with grief or, you know, asking for help for mental health. Like, we're so like, I'm just going to suffer. And it's, you know, it's okay to your, I'll use your language. It's okay to to close, to be thoughtful about when you're going to be like, I'm going to get help or support and allow myself to not over, over tax.
0: Um, okay. So we're going to pivot. First of all, I think you're nuts. I love <laughs> that you did that. I love that you did that. I, and, and I can see the value in, in, I can see why you did that. And i think I just can't believe. Like, I just can't imagine the amount of pain. And like, didn't you say there was an artery that burst or something? Oh, like, it got, it was yeah. like, it got.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the artery at the top of my mouth burst. I mean, the guy had to put his thumb into it, and the Novocaine. It was just. And and the worst thing was, my daughter and my wife were waiting to pick me up because they were there when it was supposed to end, and it went way longer. And my daughter was actually really freaked out, yeah. and, and that was the biggest thing for me, honestly, as I realized that was not a good choice for me as a parent Mm that I really kind of freaked out my daughter in a significant way. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. So before we go on (laughs) to psychedelics, I want you to just briefly
0: talk about your two experiences of opening. And one was when you're in the ocean and it's beautiful. And the other is when you're flying from Newark or Denver to Newark. So can you explain those two experiences of you opening?
1: Yeah. And these were just meant to be moments to help describe the experience of that more expansive mind that I was talking about earlier. And I wanted to outline two moments because I think there are two very different pathways we can take to this state. One of them is this pathway that I think we're probably more familiar with, which is like these moments where the mind relaxes to such an extent where there really is this kind of expansive feeling of awareness. And for me, the most vivid moment of that first happening was when I was studying abroad in Cuba, I was about 20 years old, and I was at this beach and you know just the conditions were perfect and I was sitting in the water just looking at the line between where the sea ends and the horizon begins and and it was one of those experiences of just almost for the first time in my life feeling like I could see my whole life from a bigger perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think we've all had experiences like that and and that's an experience where the mind has that kind of expansion where you see things from a bigger perspective. There's another pathway though, that I think we've all experienced, which is the pathway of significant pain and suffering. And for me, that happened about eight years later. I was at the end of grad school. I had a really serious bike accident where I got a concussion, which sent me into just months of really intense fatigue and depression and anxiety, dizziness. Tinnitus, which I still live with to this day. Mm. And I had this choice where I, I could barely go to the grocery store at the time. I mean, that's how significant the fatigue and and depression and anxiety were. And I I had to get on this plane and go visit my wife's family, or I was basically gonna blow up my marriage. That mm. that was what the story in my head, anyway. And so I got on the plane, and somewhere in the middle of that flight. I just hit this breaking point. It was like a total nervous breakdown kind of moment where I was like, get me off this. Like, I can't believe my life has been reduced to this. And the situation was perfectly designed to make it so I couldn't close down. Cause like, where was I gonna go? I was in a plane, I I can't leave, I can't run away. And, And so I just had this moment of, it was like, I just dropped into this prayer, like, please help me God, which was not something I did. At that time. And while it was through a totally different portal, the experience was similar in the sense that it just kind of opened up something for me and allowed me to make it through that experience and then and then ultimately recover from that injury, which took years, Mm. really.
2: I really appreciated that story, Nate, because I um, had a very similar pain experience, but it was mental health. It was depression. Mm -hmm. And it was when I was 40 and I was dealing with it for, I can't remember, maybe like a year. And um, I also, I would go to the park and I would either ride my bike really fast or run. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's so like symbolic, right? Like I was just like this, it's so uncomfortable. And then my, my memory is, and I kind of wanted to talk to you about this because the way you wrote it is that at one, I was in so much pain. Like I literally just, it all came up. I think I like, I remember exactly where I was and I like stopped running. And I actually, and again, it could be my own brain. I'm not trying Mm -hmm. to get overly mystical, but I actually heard something say surrender. Like it was like Mm -hmm. a word and I don't, I'm not, I don't even want to pretend that I know. It's a mystery, right? And I really fell down and had that, release that you talk about where Mm. i realized because i realized i wasn't in charge of todd i'm i'm not in charge of these girls i have my own life we are separate it was like this wash of like awareness that only came from a break because of pain Mm. and and what i loved about the way you wrote it is that i then started to get better but it wasn't like a movie where you're like oh now i'm well it was like now i had space to see things differently and you still had to heal and you know uh, how do you pronounce the ear thing? Is it tinnitus? Or I tinnitus, would, yeah. it's tinnitus. Or tinnitus. It's tinnitus. Tinnitus. Either one
1: works, yeah.
2: Which I, I have three girlfriends who have that now, and I know yeah. from them they tell me how challenging it is. and But they mm. have also said they've had breakthroughs with that because they've mm. learned to live with it, you know, whereas before... And so you would speak to that more. I, I can't speak to that. But I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that story because I think... When I had that story, I struggled to share it because it felt mm. supernatural or something. But it really is just a – it's our brain, right? I mean, like, can you explain what happened there? Like, to, you you kind of just did, but, like, it's it, – mm. our brain allows that to happen. If we, if we go through all that pain, eventually there's an open.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, Kathy, uh, it means a lot to me, just the acknowledgement of that, mm. because as a writer, and I'm sure you've experienced this too – there are certain stories where I'm like, I'm like, should I put that in there? Mm. It, it feels so tender and so yeah. vulnerable, and you know, the book comes out this week actually, and there's still this this feeling around some of these stories where it's like, wow, that that feels like a lot. I I'm not sure how comfortable I am having that out there. So it's really it means a lot to know that it it lands in a way that has meaning for you. It so does. That, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, But I, and and I loved your story because it it resonates on so many levels. And I think of it as there's this concept of letting go, which is super cliche. And so I don't love the words Mm -hmm. necessarily, but one of the pathways to that experience of letting go, I think maybe the predominant pathway is trying so hard to control something and to manipulate your life into the way you want it to be and to manipulate situations where you're you're putting out all this effort to control. And then you reach this point where you're putting out so much effort and you have this realization like I'm never going to control this thing. And it's this experience that's at once totally demoralizing yep. but also totally liberating exactly. because you it's like you can't not let go at that point because you've – You've been holding so hard, gripping so hard. There's nothing left to hold. You know, there's there's no strength left to hold that grip in place. You have that's, a. That's how I would describe those moments for me, anyway. I, I agree. Don't know if that resonates absolutely.
0: You, you have a, a a picture or a drawing in the book, um, and because I want to get to the psychedelic thing, but I think it's important to um, just stay on this for a second. Um, regarding control, cause I have control issues all the time. So that resonates with me, but there's well, a, yeah. a picture of an acorn and then there's a picture of, um, whatever, an oak tree or whatever it is. Can, can you help? Why did you put that picture in there? And does that relate to what you're yeah. talking about?
1: Absolutely. Well, this is the geeky inner philosopher in me. As you know, that's my training. Uh, the 19th century German philosopher Hegel had this idea of the acorn and the oak tree being like this process of unfolding, You know, it starts with the acorn, but then it becomes this, this oak tree. And I think that if we look at something like letting go or these moments of surrender that you're talking about, there's something similar that happens that paradoxically, the beginning of the process of letting go is actually control. Like we try to control our body or we try to control our mind or we try to control our looks, you know, to have the perfect physique and we do check out all the Instagram influencers and we take all the supplements and all these things. But then there are these moments where we realize it's not gonna work. You know, We we put out all this effort, all this energy, and then we're still 10 pounds overweight or we're still feeling anxiety or whatever. And then there's this point of resistance that we hit where it's like, I mean, nobody likes that state of feeling out of control, so it, it feels really bad and that can lead to all sorts of compulsive activities and lead us to really go back and just cycle through again. Try to control, lose control, resist, try to control. But the way we break out of that cycle, I think, is this moment of letting go Mm -hmm. where we just realize, hey, what if I were to just open to this experience exactly as it is? And you mentioned tinnitus. Ultimately, this is the way I, quote unquote, cured my tinnitus. My ear still rings. Mm -hmm. But I just got to a point where I had tried everything to control it, and I realized nothing I do is gonna help this. And I just tried to open to the sound and allow it to be as it yes. is. And it turns out this is the only scientifically validated cure for something like tinnitus. Cognitive behavioral therapy is the only treatment yeah. that has shown value for that particular condition. Everything else doesn't really work because the the sound still is there. Yeah.
0: Well, it sounds like the 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 remedy is acceptance. Is that what I just heard you say? Like just literally accept that there's a sound in your ear.
2: And then that becomes your new normal. There's like a practice over time. Again, just getting this from my girlfriends, you know, where they're like, this is just, this is what I know life to be now. And so I'll keep opening to this life, you know, that is, but I think the one more deep thought about all this, it's one of the reasons, um, uh, there's been, you know, grief situations in my life. My parents have passed and, you know, pain and loss and everything. And I have found, you know, I always talk to my girls about like the, the line between joy and grief is like, um, or joy and sadness, however you want to say it. It's so close because when some when there's death or when you're at that really low point, you are free, even as meaning like you are in the, you are deep in grief, but you're not worried about what you're going to do tomorrow. <laughs> you're not worried about what oh, you boy. look like. You're not worried. You're like in a place that lets go of control. And yeah. it's a and it's been for me an experience of it's not something I would choose, but it's it I'm not as afraid of grief mm. i I'm not yeah. I don't sit around worried about these kind of things like I used to because I know how it feels, how close it is to joy, which is hard mm. for people to understand. It's hard to talk about without it sounding um, you know I, I want to make sure that I, you know everybody feels seen in their grief process, but um, it is interesting these things that you're talking about with opening and closing how it applies to so many aspects of life um okay
0: psychedelics so i feel like you crawled into my brain hey everybody quick plug for uh my friend david serrano david has been the personal financial manager for both kathy and i for cheese, I think five or six years. Um, really smart um, and he's trustworthy, which I think is the most important piece of getting any type of financial advisor in my life. A few things he's done for me, he has helped me navigate the tricky balance between needing to save for retirement and the need to put money aside for my college, uh, my kid's college tuition. So another thing, he helped me find a bunch of hidden fees in my 401k that I have. The impact has been tremendous. So. David uh, gives one-to-one financial advice, personalized recommendations. Uh, He's available. Um, He's just a wonderful guy. So I invite you to reach out to him. His phone number is 815-370-3780. Join the circle, which is the Team Zen membership platform. It's an app with Zen Parenting Radio's complete parenting content, plus live talks on Zoom all in one place. We have small group discussions about money, raising healthy sons, differently wired families. And Kathy even has her own exclusive women's group. It's only $25 a month. You can cancel at any time. Our motto is zero pressure, 100% support.
2: Okay, everybody, there's three things you can do for us. If you haven't already, follow this podcast. That's good for you because you don't have to go looking for the show. And it's good for us because it helps people find us. You can subscribe to my Zen Parenting Moment newsletter, which comes out every Friday. It's just some information for you to make you feel better about your day and about your parenting overall. And then three, if you like this podcast, you will love Zen Parenting the book. I put together everything that we talk about on this show, all the essential points, all the things that people ask us about in one place. You can find Zen Parenting the book anywhere books are sold brain and <laughs> yeah, this was helpful.
0: spoke to all of my fears around it like you and i had because you had some experiences that you we're about to talk about but the 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 judgments that you had previously to psychedelics as illicit drugs are bad drugs aren't opening they're an escape if illicit drugs are so great then what's with the narcissism and ego trips for so many of the people who take them totally and drugs mess people up so like dude that that not that that is me like right now and I know it's judgment but I can't get past the judgment and I'm also like curious about it but I'm not ready to do anything even in a therapy therapeutic uh, environment. It's just Todd's, too scary.
2: Todd's dad was, it was a police officer and he like hammered into him mm. how any kind of drug is going to be a problem and like showed him videos and just really. So not only did he get it from society yeah, and culture, but he had a father just, who's like, I see people on drugs. Well, I
0: remember it was a police seminar and I was like eight years old and there was a slideshow and it showed some horrific images of people on drugs. And apparently I, I, I wasn't paying attention when they talked about alcohol because the minute I turned whatever, 15 or 16, I started getting drunk. <laughs> but the drug part, the illicit drug part was something that really spoke to me. So I I was like so excited to read your experience of it because it's like you were talking about, you were talking as if I was, all of my judgments around drug use, all your fears around it. And the whole idea was to see if psychedelics can open or is it just an escape? So Um, I have a lot of different directions I want to go in, but I first want to just give you the floor to say uh, you could either talk about, you know, why you chose ketamine or what you got out of it. There's a part of me that wants to maybe read a section on your second ketamine session. Maybe I'll have you do that. Maybe I'll read it and maybe I'll ignore it. But just what is it that you want to share about that experience?
1: Well, I would say starting with what you just brought up, I had a lot of resistance. The first manuscript or the first proposal for this book had nothing in it about psychedelics. I wasn't planning to write about psychedelics, let alone take psychedelics. But two things changed my mind. One was the emerging research on psychedelics I think is really kind of mind-blowing and we may be witnessing the biggest revolution in the way we treat mental health care conditions since the advent of SSRIs 50 years Mm -hmm. ago. I think it could be that significant. The second thing that changed my mind was this distinction between psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted therapy. And so I try to be really careful and clear in this book that I was not doing psychedelics, like sitting in my backyard, popping LSD, and just like seeing what would happen. Um, I was engaged in psychedelic-assisted therapy where, there, yes, there are psychedelic compounds, but it's paired with a really intentional structure of support, a skilled guide, extensive integration, things like that. So the reason that distinction was important for me is that I just, like you, I mean, I had heard horror stories about people who just took psychedelics recreationally. You know, I had a family member... He went to a rock concert, took LSD 30 years ago, fell into a major crippling depression, couldn't hold down a job for the rest of his life. Like That that was the context I was entering all this in. And what I learned is that psychedelic assisted therapy mitigates most of those risks because you undergo pretty extensive mental health screenings. You have a guide in case anything were to go wrong. There's a lot of integration, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really, I think, what opened me up to the idea. And and I also, I think, was curious because for me, the question was, are these drugs just another way to close down? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I mean, this is like smoking pot at the end of a stressful day or something. Or do they give us access to opening to the parts of our mind that are so raw, so vulnerable, so traumatized that we can't even go there in ordinary consciousness? And that was like the key motivator for me mm. so I'm happy to talk about, actually the second one is the one I usually talk about if you want me to well I,
0: there's let me just read a little bit you have a book nearby one of your books and I don't know is it, yeah, I got it right I feel here. like Terry gross right now asking him to read something that he wrote and I have sure. the uncorrected proof so I don't know but on page 75 this is the first of your ketamine sessions and you don't okay you don't have to read it if you don't want to or you could just and you could just explain it as best you remember or you could read it because I was like like laughing and terrified all at the same time. Ah. So <laughs> nice. you, you, you can either talk about it or you could read it. Whatever feels friendlier to you. Well, do you want me to talk about the first one or the second? Well, one? Well, the second one, I'm just going to like give you the second one, the only thing I wrote down was <laughs> 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 what you said is it's God. God is a plane crash. It's also beautiful.
1: Yes. Like
2: that I totally get that. Like
1: You want me to <laughs> fill out the context? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I okay. do that one. <laughs> that Okay, so I have had a fear of flying for about 20 years, really since 9/11. And in addition to the fear while I'm on an airplane, I've had these like recurring dreams of, you know, a plane flight gone wrong or I'm in a plane crash, whatever, like once a week or so. So I'm going into my second ketamine-assisted therapy session. And my intent was not to work on flight anxiety. I really did not walk in that day being like, oh, I'm going to see if I can solve my flight issue here. It was more just, well, let's see what happens here. But I happened to be flying a couple days later. So like that background of anxiety, I think, was just in my mind. So I get in, I take the ketamine, I put on the headphones, the eye mask, lie down, Sarah, my therapist, right next to me. 10 minutes later, like I'm on a plane and it's not a real plane, but I'm on this plane that, that feels real and I'm flying all over the world. And everything about this experience is the same as ordinary flying, except I feel no fear, none of the fear, the anxiety, the looping, catastrophic thinking thoughts, kind of stuff all gone. And Then, like, you know, the walls of the plane dissolve and the ceiling dissolves. And I'm just kind of flying in this wide open thing. And then the mood shifts. And all of a sudden, the plane is spiraling toward the earth full speed. We nosedive into the earth and it's just incinerated in a fireball. And I watch myself incinerated and everybody else on the plane incinerated. And that's when I say to Sarah, it's God. God is a plane crash. It's so beautiful. It's like a work of art. And I realize that... Sounds like a totally crazy drug trip story. But what's really important about that moment is what happened afterwards. And this is now two years ago, because after doing a lot of integration sessions with Sarah, when I would then go to fly on a plane, my baseline level of anxiety went way down, but it was still there to some extent. But when I would feel anxiety, it was like, as soon as the experience arose, my mind would almost automatically go to those images and experiences of being on that flight on, I call it the Ketamine Express. And so it was like somehow, instead of going down the super highway of its ordinary habitual thinking, which is, you know, thinking about worst case scenarios, et cetera, it had this new super highway that it could travel down. Yeah. The other thing that happened is all the dreams just stopped. Like, I just stopped dreaming about flying, which is kind of wild and weird. So all that's to say, yes, it was this crazy drug trip experience. But what was happening in that experience is I was getting access to open to a part of my mind and my psyche that I had never been able to touch and explore and open to before in in quite that way. And it was it was really life changing for me.
2: Yeah, it reminded me, you know, your story a lot. Well, first of all, I will say I've been more open to um, psychedelic treatment than Todd has. I know I'm going to do it at some point in my life. and I, you know, and to your point, I am also because I talk to my girls about it all the time. Because as a parent, you have to differentiate between recreational drugs and then medicine, you know, that is used to help yeah. you open and that to have it's it's something you do in an office. It's something you do with someone who knows what they're doing. Because to your point, you have to come back down to earth and integrate. Um, But I have had similar experiences with EMDR, and I don't know if you have studied EMDR. um, And and again, I don't know if it's quite as quick, and I don't even know if it's doing the exact same thing, but the ability to lay down new neural pathways or to open up a traumatic area of our brain and look at it for real. And like in your story, you talk about the snake that comes out at the beginning. And when you stay with that snake, it's actually trying to help you. It's not – we perceive – our brain perceives things to be negative or positive or scary or not. But when you stay with it, it again it gets messy. Where everything it's how we think about it. Just like the plane crash, oh my gosh, it's God. We've been trained to be afraid of certain things when really it's all all encompassing. And again, it starts to sound mystical, but that's what um, you know. Again, assisted psychedelic. Um, therapist-assisted psychedelic use or things like EMDR or other kinds of processing helps us open those parts of our brain. We don't even, we don't realize how much that's bleeding through in our everyday life. To your point, your dreams, you know, depression, behavior, we, if we don't deal with it, it deals with us. So
1: yeah, the metaphor I really like, it comes from a man named Robin Carhart Harris, who's one of the leading researchers on the neuroscience of psychedelics at UCSF. He likens our ordinary state of consciousness to a mountain during the summer, you know, like the mountaintop that's jagged and it's got rocks and it's sheer. And you think to yourself, how on earth can anybody go down that mountain, go up that mountain? And, when we add or layer on top of that psychedelic assisted therapy, it's kind of like going to that same mountaintop in the winter where there's a blanket of snow covering the mountain. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, all of those sheer rocky rough parts are smoothed over and it's Mm -hmm. still pretty gnarly. I mean, it's still Mm -hmm. a mountain, Mm -hmm. but you can imagine all sorts of new ways to go down it. You know, I live in here in Colorado where we ski a lot and it's like, (laughs) every time you go to a ski area in the summer, you think to yourself, how does anybody ski that? But then in the winter, you know, you have that experience. And I think that's what's going on with psychedelic assisted therapy, something like that, where we're just getting a new perspective and the ability to go to a place where we ordinarily really just can't go. It's not safe to go there. Yeah.
0: So it's funny. So the metaphor of the snake, which showed up in one of your ketamine experiences, it reminded me of the part in Sixth Sense, um, you know, the boy sees all the dead people. Yeah. And... It's really scary. Those are scary parts of the movie. And then they, at the end of the movie, they look back and all those ghosts were trying to to to, help, to talk, or, or be there, yeah. or yeah. be
2: seen. Yeah. And that's and that's what all parts of us. You know, it's uh, so many things that have become more mainstream. You know. Um, You know, internal family systems. You know, understanding all the pieces of ourselves, understanding all these levels, understanding our emotions, and not saying there are good emotions and bad emotions. It's all lending. It's all paving the way for all these new treatments. Is that we just used to be, you know, so binary, and 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 some people still are. But there's just so much room in between. To um, you know, just like I was saying with the joy and pain, they're so close. Like we don't need to Mm. decide or be afraid of this and want this because going back to the phone you know like you said the this path where we're you know to sugar where we're like we're we're being pushed to this easy path where if we could see resistance is not something we need to avoid but just understand so
0: um so Nate explains three of these ketamine sessions and before we get to the third one which is kind of hilarious and fascinating all by itself i i just want to like uh notice the pattern because i'm just going to read this um this is from your first one and you're in the middle of your ketamine experience, then my mind starts cycling through a mental slideshow of all sorts of childhood traumas. It's like the greatest of fear and shame that takes me back to the experience of being 12 years old, latchkey kid in my parents' house. And yet I'm strangely okay with it. I begin to realize that I'm experiencing a total inversion of perspective. I'm seeing all these dark, horrible moments of my life as the good moments. I see how I can trace everything great, happy, and meaningful, my life... Uh, for my life with all these so-called traumas and then you close say the bad is the good here i shout out to sarah and that's the therapist see what this dark thing is i see all dark i see what all the dark things are they're god mm-hmm. like that's that's it's so interesting because these traumas the story i make up about my traumas is that they're inhibiting me they're getting in the way of my full experience and your ketamine experience was basically just taking that and turning it upside down
1: yeah. And I think that's kind of like the the really interesting thing about these compounds paired with therapy from the perspective of how do we create more space and open the mind is that they're basically inverting our ordinary mental value system where, as you were both saying, most of us have thoughts where we say, oh, that's a good thought. I like that thought. Mm-hmm. And then thoughts. That's a bad thought. I don't like that thought. Don't don't ever come back here. Right. Or good emotions. We like that. We like feeling good, sadness, anxiety, fear, panic. That's Mm -hmm. bad. Don't want to feel that. And I think the experience to your point, Todd, like the, the thread running through all the experiences is in some of these altered states with the support of a therapist, you can start to see anything that arises in your mind as having both a good side to it and a bad side to it. It's being like beautiful in its own weird way, you know, where plane crashes are beautiful. Panic attacks are beautiful, you know, like having really traumatic childhood experiences is beautiful. And and that's not to say that they are Mm -hmm. in real space. So I am not saying like, these are good things. They're not, but having the experience of seeing them in that different way in your own mind Can change the way in which you relate to those experiences such that there's not as much like resistance and fear and kind of like hiding out from our own emotions and thoughts. I love that. Um, Yeah.
2: In this nuanced way of thinking, you know, this is why I've been very focused in the last couple of years on making sure when with teens, especially that we talk about this critical thinking because you did that so beautifully. You're like that all these things are beautiful. I'm not saying they are and that just that sentence if you if you're not right. critically thinking you wouldn't understand what you just said you're not saying trauma's good but you're also not saying trauma will inhibit you the rest of your life and it's bad trauma can open be yeah. the opening for people pain can be the opening i'm not saying you should have it i'm saying so it's so it's so um whole it's mm. I, it's like as we are as humans again everything becomes really meta around this you know where it's like there is nothing that's good and bad mm. that doesn't exist it's everything yeah. you know critical
0: um, so ketamine experience number 3 will you <laughs> will you talk about that
1: sure my first two experiences were nothing short of mind blowing and so i went into this third ketamine assisted therapy session thinking this was going to be this another just amazing journey into psychedelic outer space and i was going to learn all these new insights and and i then took the medicine and the journey began and nothing happened and i was like what is happening like why i feel like more should be happening i should be feeling something i should be going somewhere i should be like on a plane or something and i kept telling sarah you know like nothing's happening what's going on what did i do wrong it all just feels so blah. And that became sort of like the theme of that particular experience. And it wasn't just blah, it was like, painfully blah, just so, bo- like amplifying blah. They, they often call psychedelics nonspecific amplifiers, so they turn up the volume on whatever's in the mind. So it was like turning up the volume on blah. <laughs> and my therapist, who's just so amazing, basically every time something would come up. So the snake comes up or blah comes up. She would always have the same coaching, which was well, Nate, what's it like to be with blah. Mm -hmm. And so, so then I'd go back and, and what I realized, it it felt like I was, I had failed and like the whole thing was just like, you know, terrible. But in the integration with her, she was like, you know, these are actually the most powerful Mm -hmm. sessions because you really start to see all the dimensions of your mind. Mm. You know, your mind isn't just about like these really expansive states and bliss. It's also about blah. Mm-hmm. And so there's something really powerful about getting in touch with blah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I love
0: that. And just so I understand, um, was the volume of blah turned up? Or was it, or did yeah. you feel like there was, no, there was no drugs in your brain?
1: no, there were definitely drugs in my brain. Cause at the end I was like dizzy and you know, all the, all the usual effects of ketamine, but it was more that, that that experience just felt like, yeah, it was, it was intensified. Mm -hmm. It was amplified. Yeah. (laughs) Got it. Cool. Um, okay. Sweetie, do you want me to keep going
2: or do you want to go? Um, well, I don't know because I want to get to I, – I think I want to talk about, if we could, about what you did in regards to talking to people who think differently about guns mm-hmm. or who actually yeah. you know go to shooting ranges and practice and whatever it may be. And did you – when you decided to do that, obviously we connecting it to your book, it's an opening because you were realizing how politicized we have become and how these people are bad. Again, it's this they're bad, we're good or vice versa – and you in, why did you choose guns? Cause there's a lot of things you can choose in there. Um, but it was that one that you really were so, is that, was that one that you were very against and you're like, so I'm going to I'm going to practice this one and just see where I go. Like where, where, why'd you choose that one?
1: So I think about closing is happening on two different levels. One is this kind of internal level where we're often closing to our own minds but there's also this more external form of closure that I think we're all familiar with. That's the political polarization piece. And so, in addition to things like <clears throat> excuse me, the psychedelic assisted therapy to open to my mind, I wanted to explore opening to other people, mm, particularly those who I disagreed with. And I live here in Boulder, Colorado. I'm a pretty like left of center kind of guy. I think guns are really scary and I'm for gun control. So I was thinking like to to challenge myself going to a training from the NRA would be like the just like the outer edges of my limit. And Mm -hmm. so that's why I chose that particular experience with the National Rifle Association. I just knew. Like, this was going to immerse me in a group that was totally different from my ordinary circumstance.
0: I'm guessing when you walked into wherever you go, the gun place, because I'm kind of with you, I'm guessing you did not look like the typical guy that shows up to those types of things. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, I I wasn't totally, you know, in the in the same mode as everyone else. But there's this kind of funny story, which is that That morning, I decided I was going to try to, like, find common ground through wearing my Denver Bronco hat. Oh, good. And so I drove to rural Colorado for this training, but I was still in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So my thinking was, well, everybody in Colorado loves the Denver Broncos, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, maybe we don't agree about guns, but we can agree about that. So I walk in, and I see two of my fellow students come in. One has a Kansas City Chiefs jacket on, and I make a little joke, like, yeah, I don't know we can be friends because... I like the Broncos. You like the Chiefs, and her husband just kind of looks at me, and he's like, "Oh, you're fine. We haven't watched the NFL in five years after the kneeling."
2: That's right. Oh, That's wow. Right. The,
1: the kneeling. Mm-hmm. Oh, Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. And our the instructor comes over. He's like, "Yeah, I haven't given the NFL a cent of my money in five years." Blah blah blah. Interesting. So I was like, "Whoa, we're mm-hmm. further apart than I thought." Yeah. yeah. And then, I, then I, I come back into a conversation where this same gentleman was talking to my instructor and I hear him say, you know, I just think the right has all the best answers. And then he says, but I guess we shouldn't assume things here. What side are you on? Mm. Pointing at me. And I was like, well, uh, and I just told him what was true for me. I'm on the side of being open to all points of view. And I thought that was going to be a total dud but like the whole vibe of the room changed and everybody's like, yeah, why don't we talk to each other? This is crazy. We should be talking to each other. So it was this, for me, an amazing moment where it's like, we can't agree on anything. We can't agree on guns. We can't agree even on the Denver Broncos, Mm -hmm. but we can agree that we should talk to each other. So for me, it was this like really scary, terrifying, but also healing experience because I just saw in the end, like, there is no enemy here. These are people just like me trying to do their best. And yes, we have different beliefs, but but the whole, like, feeling that there was an enemy fell away for me.
2: You know, I totally relate that story to, you know, we'll bring it into parenting and relationships. You know, your previous book, 8080, is that... That's how you approach conversations with the people you love, too, is when we think we're already right, when we think we've won, when we think we have the higher ground, when we think that we're more the authority figure, when we're looking down, whatever it may be, you are never you don't reach people that way. But when you come in, in any conversation with a, you know, you may have a point of view, but you're like, I am totally open to yours. You know, what did I miss something? How do you feel? How did, you know, Did what did it seem like for you? Every, rela- every conversation, you know, the, all that frustration or all of that desire to win decreases, and we, we connect on that level. There's no other way around it. You know, so many times when we talk about these things, and I'm sure you had the same experience with your book when you were touring with it, people are like, yeah, that sounds good, but how can we do it quickly? You know, like people mm, like want this, like, yeah. I want to stay right. How do I convince people of my viewpoint? And that's what we're doing politically right now is how do I get everyone to think like me? And and you even wrote this, and I so agree with this. We would, e- we even want people who disagree with us not only to be somewhere else, but we even l- are like we hope they die. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. we are so distant. We are so far from each other that we're doing like old us-them yeah. stuff. And so, you know, I, I don't Did you make friends in this situation? Like did you meet people you're still talking to? Or was it more like a because you kind of drove to a different place, it was more of a momentary experience?
1: Yeah, I don't still talk to any of these folks, but I, you know, we spent quite a bit of time together. I went out to lunch with this one couple and we really got to know each other. They we talked a lot about marriage in addition to Trump and various conspiracy theories, which was just the, the combination of it all was totally bizarre and wild. But yeah, I mean, I think that. To me, there's there's a possibility for how we get out of this downward spiral toward greater political polarization here, which is to to listen instead of trying to win, yeah. and to actually engage face to face rather than through all these siloed media, alg- algorithmic media environments where we're fed the perspective we already agree with ad nauseum. And and you know, there's another route here. Yeah. So yeah. once again, I just admire. <sighs>
0: that you wrote a book not just from thought but from experiences that by far is the most powerful piece of why i think this book is as good as it is is because you put yourself in places of discomfort gum surgery putting yourself in in proximity with peace with people that you disagree with um ketamine which is something that scared the bejesus out of you so um I, I want it because we only have about six minutes left. I want to just say uh, some of your tools because the first thing I read was the tools. Like, okay, what are the tools that I can pull from Todd this book? jumps to the tools, and I, yes. I yeah, so don't anyways, we all? Yeah. So political yeah. polarization yeah. tools. I'm not going to read them all, but just the two which we just talked about. Listen to the other side, but you say read, but don't watch the news. Can you yeah. just give me like thirty seconds or a minute on that?
1: I think that there's something challenging when we are. Watching news happen in real time, it almost feels like we're there, and that creates all sorts of craving and addiction, and you know, things in our brain that I think we can avoid by reading the news historically is the way I like to think about it. You know, like when you read about the civil war, you don't get like really scared Mm -hmm. about the civil war, it happened, whatever 200 years ago almost. Similarly, if we read the news historically, it just has a little bit less hook on it. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
0: Um, okay, go ahead,
1: sweetie.
2: Well, I was going to say that connects again to the mirror awareness <clears throat> and the meta-awareness is like, I think we, Todd and I, stopped, wa- stopped watching the news when the girls were little. My daughters are now 20, 19, and 16. But I remember when they were little, I couldn't tolerate it. any. Like I literally couldn't see the images anymore. I still listen. I still read. Um, but we, if we're not aware, then we really feel the terror of what they're telling us, which is for clicks or for keeping you, you know, connected or to keeping you off another channel. And it's not that again, It gets into this nuancing. It's not that it's not true. Some of it is true. But how it's being spoken about is don't turn away, don't look away, go do this, you know, um, hate these people, whatever it may be. And we have to and I feel like the audio plus the video image, it just gets in you more. You know, it's one thing for me to listen to, I feel like I can keep that meta. Awareness. Am I using this correctly? The mirror awareness versus the meta. Okay, because that was that was new commentary to me. So I want to make sure I'm using it right. Um, But that being conscious of what you're watching and realizing why it's on the TV and that they have to fill 24 hours. But sometimes we just think it's truth.
0: Totally. Yeah. Um, Okay. Three minutes left. I'm just going to read some bullet points from the Screen Addiction Tools, and you just give me one line in response to it. So um, to help the listener, do-it-yourself screen binge.
1: Yeah, that would be the experiment I undertook for myself. It helps you shift from craving to revulsion, Mm. which ultimately undermines the novelty bias that's going on that's driving us back to our screens.
0: Number two, reconfigure your home.
1: Basic idea here is environmental design, create friction in between you and your device and create less friction in between you and the things that matter. Mm.
0: Number three, uh, and if you need help, I have it all bullet
1: pointed, but it seems like you
0: got it. Reconfigure
1: (laughs) your time. For me, this means setting aside time each day for distraction, where that's the time I go on Instagram, that's the time I go on the news so that the rest of my day is free from it.
0: Uh, Last but not least, reconfigure your devices.
1: Change the way your phone looks such that, again, there's friction to getting to those parts of your phone that keep you distracted. For me, that's putting Instagram, all the distracting apps on like five home screens away from the actual home using focus mode. Do not disturb. Screen time tools, all that stuff. And you even say buy a smaller phone, which is a
0: wonderful friction. Because if you buy a weak-ass phone, then you can't do half the stuff that an iPhone can do,
1: right? Exactly. I've got the small phone here, and they discontinued it, sadly. Mm. Apple no longer makes it, but you can still get a flip phone. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Okay,
0: um, the name of the book is called Open. It comes out today, February 13th. We didn't
2: get to uh, half of what I wanted to talk about, Nate, but. I know, and our people who listen to this, you know, we've been talking about mindfulness and, and you know, self awareness self-awareness and everything for a long time. I want everyone to hear that it, this really is different. Um, it I, I felt like not only did I relate to a lot of the stories, but just the, the way Nate's going at it. So if you were having the experience that Todd and I do where it's like, oh, another book about this, this is different. Yeah. So give it a go. Um, and it comes out today, right, Todd?
0: February 13th, today, 2024. Uh, yeah, 2024. Yes. Um, so, Nate, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate you. Hang on just for a second so we can say goodbye, but we'll catch everybody else uh, next Tuesday
1: on Zen Parenting Radio. Thank you so much for having me.
2: If you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of Zen Parenting Radio podcasts, please tell a friend or leave a five-star review. We are grateful for your support. If you want more Zen Parenting, consider joining Team Zen Circle, our very own app that includes our virtual community, exclusive content, and support from us. You could also purchase Kathy's
0: award-winning book, Zen Parenting, Caring for Ourselves and Our Children in an Unpredictable World or subscribe to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com slash resources. And if you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking, and we'll talk to you again next week.